Professor Chomsky, thank you for joining us on the Alagos Radio. You have written and spoken extensively about the ongoing crisis in Greece and Europe and about similar crises in the past. And to begin, you've said in the past that the Troika, the IMF, the European Union, and the European Central Bank wants to destroy Greece. Why do you believe that Greece is the target or the scapegoat, if you will, however, when it represents such a small percentage of the world's economy? Well, actually, I'm sure I didn't say it wants to destroy Greece. I say its policies are destroying Greece. Uh, what I presume they're trying to do is uh, actually what was stated by the uh, uh, president of the ECB, Mario Draghi. Now, he didn't state this as an intention, but uh, as a description of what's happening. He says the current policies will destroy the European social contract the welfare state. Now, that was in an interview uh, uh, in the Wall Street Journal. He wasn't advocating it. He was describing it. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. I don't think they're picking on Greece specifically. It's that Greece is the weakest link in the chain, so it will therefore suffer the most from these policies. In your view, why has there been such a tremendous and continued insistence on austerity measures when these measures have, so far at least, not been working out in Greece? Well, it depends what you mean by working out. They certainly haven't been working out in terms of reviving the economy or even in paying off the debt. That's actually increasing, which is, uh, and, it, and it's not that these policies aren't working now, such policies virtually never work. In fact, the IMF not long ago did a study of, I think, a few hundred cases of austerity under recession and found that the record is typically very poor. And it's understandable why uh, austerity, what, what you need in a period of recession is growth, and that requires stimulation. Uh, that's why... Uh, even the business press, like Business Week in the United States or uh, correspondence for the Financial Times in London, are urging that, uh, as they put it, now is the time to press the accelerator. Uh, the break will come later. It's actually the same advice that uh, Christiana Romer, the uh, chief of uh, the head of uh, former head of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors gave when she recommended a strong stimulus. It was a small stimulus, so it should have been larger, but even the small stimulus had uh, a positive effect. And I think that's correct. I think the business press is correct in saying that what you have to do is stimulate the economy, that the economy grows, you have the capacity to pay off debt, uh, but if you impose austerity, it probably will just increase the debt, meanwhile causing enormous pain. Uh, I mean, many human lives are being lost forever. For young people particularly, if they are driven off the job market, the chances of recovering are not high. That means their lives. Uh, also, from a strictly economic point of view, the uh, narrow economic point of view, forgetting human consequences. Uh, that means huge resources are, are wasted. The human resources, the human capital, economists like to call it, which uh, can be producing uh, uh, what people need. In fact, what we're seeing, it's not that the European Union is short of resources. 
and has plenty of resources, which it could use, same in the United States. Uh, so what we're seeing is uh, a real indictment of the uh, socioeconomic system in which we live. There are a huge number of people who want to work. In the United States, it's probably close to 25 million who uh, aren't either are unemployed or underemployed or given up, maybe 23 million, as comparably in Europe. Huge number of people who want to work, plenty of resources to put them to work, and a, a lot of work that uh, needs to be done to satisfy basically people's needs and legitimate wants. But the system can't get them together. Uh, there couldn't be a, a harsher indictment of a socioeconomic system. And I don't think it's that the methods are all that obscure. Uh, the simple proposal of most of the business press is to the point, many economists have pointed out the same thing, uh, Nobel laureates and others. Uh, there, are, there are resources there. They're ample. They can be used to stimulate the economy. Right now, it would have to be done through the federal government because uh, demand is low, and therefore, uh, corporations, which uh, happen to be sitting on huge profits, are not investing them because there's no demand. So the demand's not going to come from that, and therefore, it will come from the government. Why aren't these resources being taken advantage of then, whether we're talking about the Eurozone or the United States? Why are these resources not being put to use? Well, there are official reasons, but I don't think they're very credible, but you can judge them for yourself. First of all, we should recognize that there's a, there's a difference between the U.S. and the European central banks. The U.S. central bank, uh, the Federal Reserve, has an official commitment to two different policies. One is to prevent inflation from getting too high. Uh, the second is to maintain high employment. Those are its two legal requirements. The European Central Bank has only the first, has no commitment to keep uh, 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 employment up. And that's the result of its domination by the Bundesbank, the German bank, which is who are inflation hawks. Uh, I think, and I can, plenty of economists think that, uh, again, including Nobel laureates, that the uh, they have a two percent inflation uh, goal, and actually their inflation is not even close to a problem. But the banks don't like the possibility of maybe inflation far in the future. Uh, high inflation isn't good for bank for financial institutions, uh, but it's it's a pretty remote contingency right now. But their that's their commitment to keep the potential inflation low, even though to stimulate the economy they are going to have to accept a, a higher rate of inflation. And there's quite good substantial economic literature showing that a higher rate of inflation, if it's more or less stable, is perfectly consistent with uh, uh, long-term growth. But, uh, but even that's not... And in, in the United States, it's kind of similar, except that here uh, the Fed does have a commitment to employment. And in fact, in comparison with the European Central Bank, the U.S. Fed has been 
mildly progressive. It's taken at least some moves towards uh, stimulating the economy, quantitative easing, and so on and so forth. They could do a lot more. Uh, there's no fear of inflation here. It, it's kind of interesting that all these people is, are supposed to be worshiping markets, but the markets are telling them loud and clear that they see no concern about inflation. Uh, that's why money's pouring into the U.S. Uh, treasury uh, instruments, even though the interest rate is so low that people are practically losing money just to, be, to keep it in a safe place. But they wouldn't be doing that if they thought there was going to be inflation or the value of their uh, uh, their deposits would decline. So the markets are saying we don't see any problem with inflation. There's no evidence of any such problem. But the uh, uh, the financial institutions have been so powerful in determining policy, that their concern for eventual inflation, which is not in sight, is in fact uh, increasing the uh, severity of the problem. I mean, that's the benign interpretation. There's a less benign interpretation, and that is that it's, uh, which has been suggested, that it really comes down to class war. It's an effort to destroy the uh, social contract, the European welfare state, the much weaker U.S. welfare state. In fact, that's been almost stated. So, for example, Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, European Central Bank, in a Wall Street Journal interview a couple of months ago, uh, did point out that uh, the social contract in Europe is uh, obsolete. He wasn't saying that that's the goal of policy, but... uh, uh, it's hard to doubt that there are those who see it as a goal of policy, and that's the effect that it's having, at least in southern Europe, to a much more limited extent in the north. And this is not new, incidentally. This goes back to Reagan and Thatcher. The Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal assault, I think it's a fair word, all throughout the world, on domestic societies too, has had just this effect and a predictable effect. Parliamentary elections were held in Greece in May and again in June. How would you characterize the elections and the overall political climate that has developed in Greece, including the rise of parties like Syriza on the left and the Golden Dawn on the right? Well, I'm afraid that I think that these are signs of desperation. Um, The Greek population is being squeezed beyond the capacity to endure. I mean, it's not becoming Southern Africa. It's still a relatively well-off country by international standards. But it's being driven down to uh, living standards of the 1960s uh, and uh, maybe earlier. And that's pretty hard to tolerate. Now, it's, you know, it does have to be added. There are plenty of internal problems in Greece. It's not all. You can't attribute everything to the Troika. Though I think their policies have been bad enough. I mean, Greece has been, in many ways, a, partial, a kind of dis- partially dysfunctional society. For example, the wealthy don't the wealthy barely pay taxes. They have all sorts of devices for not paying taxes. I mean, to an extent, that's true elsewhere, including the United States. But uh, it's been pretty extreme in Greece, and there's also been uh, a, a proliferation of uh, unnecessary. Uh, and in fact, harmful uh, bureaucracy that has ought to be taken care of, no matter what the uh, 
uh, what the policies are, even if Greece is flourishing. Uh, it's been claimed in the, in the northern countries that Greeks don't work hard enough, but that's just not true. They have higher working hours than northern Europe. But there are a lot of internal problems in Greece which are being exacerbated by the, uh, by the policies of the Troika. In the past, you've developed a list of media manipulation strategies that the mass media around the world uses in order to establish control and to manipulate in many ways the audience. Do you believe that the people of Greece are victims of any of these strategies? Or indeed, do you believe that the global community has fallen victim to these strategies as a result of the very negative reporting about Greece in the global media? Well, I should... Uh had a cautionary note here. There, you may be referring to something that circulates on the internet called, uh, I think, uh, 10 Strategies of Manipulation by the Media, which is attributed to me, but I didn't write it. There have been many efforts to uh, correct it and get it off, but once something's on the internet, it's uh, hopeless. So if that's what you mean, that's not mine. Uh, I wouldn't say the media have a particular strategy. I mean, there are the media different in different countries, but I take, say, the United States, which has been the most intensively studied. I think other, at least Western European countries, are pretty similar, uh, but there's not as much study of them. Uh, in the United States, there are very uh, definite uh, uh, pressures, institutional pressures primarily, which uh, tend to drive uh, media coverage and choice of issues and so on in particular directions, which are not surprisingly, uh, it's not surprisingly tend to be supportive of major power structures. Uh, the state and the private sector, a concentrated private power, which are very closely linked. Uh, I and others have uh, written about these pressures. It's not, uh, I wouldn't call it a media strategy. It's the reflection of the pressures within which they function. Uh, and I think it's there's a huge amount of docu documentation which, in my view, shows quite persuasively that uh, these pressures have a big impact, not 100%, this range of variation, but very substantial impact on what the media choose to focus on uh, and what they report about it and how they present it, and so on. You see that all the time. Um, you can hardly open a copy of the newspaper without seeing it. So take, say, this morning's New York Times. Uh, there's a front-page story. I don't remember the exact words, but if you just look at the headline, uh, the story is about uh, the evil man, as he's called, who's in charge of uh, uh, creating chaos in Iraq, I mean, you can think of somebody else who created chaos in Iraq, namely the United States, which, first of all, imposed 10 years of murderous sanctions, which practically devastated the society, then invaded the country, killed hundreds of thousands of people, drove millions into displaced millions, a couple of million out of the country, half destroyed the society, uh, engendered a a, uh, an ethnic, a bitter ethnic conflict which didn't exist before and has had horrible effects. Well, that's creating chaos. But since we did it, it's not creating chaos. And if Iran is trying to uh, 
uh, as the, you read the report, what it says is they're trying to extend their influence into Iraq, a neighboring country, uh, as we do and everyone else does. That's causing chaos. Well, okay, that's a perception that uh, reflects the interests of state and private power here, and it's, we'd regard it as laughable if uh, we saw it somewhere else. And that's, you know, that's typical. You find it constantly. I don't even think it, I don't even think it's conscious. It's just deeply embedded in the uh, mentality of uh, not only the media but the educated classes pretty generally. So I doubt if many readers find this very surprising. In your view, what are Greece's options at this stage in order to overcome the crisis and the ongoing cycle of austerity? For instance, do you believe that a return to a national currency would be a good thing for Greece? Well, that has been suggested. There's some quite good economists who have suggested it. It means basically pulling out of the European Union. And that has that has definite costs for the European Union and for Greece. Uh, it uh, would permit Greece to uh, f uh, use classical means to uh, try to extricate itself from the crisis. For example, it could deflate its currency and therefore improve its capacity to export uh, at a cost of lowering standard of living. Uh, that's a, a kind of a natural way to get out of a crisis like this. Uh, can't do it as long as it's in, within the eurozone. It would have that option. Uh, whether how how that, but I think one would have to think pretty carefully about the array of costs and benefits. That's and frankly, I, I don't feel I have enough of a grasp on it to make a judgment. It's a hard judgment. I don't know if anyone has the capacity, but it's a hard judgment which would have to be thought through. Uh, are there other alternatives that you feel could be could bring Greece toward prosperity again, other than a, a return to its own currency? Yeah, a stimulative process, uh, uh, policy in the eurozone. Uh, the ECB, for example, uh, the, the eurozone has resources. Uh, there's plenty of resources, wealthy area, a lot of, and they could be used to uh, stimulate growth in the countries that are facing difficulties. I mean, they're all facing slight difficulties, but they're more severe uh, in the southern, in the south, in Greece, Spain, Portugal, Italy, and Ireland, which is sort of metaphorically south, the peripheral parts. I, I should say that in a certain sense, Europe is now suffering from its relative humanity stress the word relative. So, for example, if you compare the European Union to its North American counterpart, that is NAFTA, not an exact counterpart, but similar, uh, they were an act developed right about the same time, but in quite different ways. Uh, in the case of the European Union, before the poorer countries were permitted into the Union, uh, the richer countries, basically the North, uh, used a variety of devices to improve, to raise the standard of living and the standards of production in the poorer countries so that when they did enter, they wouldn't undermine the living standards of northern workers. 
Uh, and, and that was pretty successful, compensatory spending, uh, subsidies of various kinds and so on. It wasn't perfect, but it made some move in that direction. It was moderately successful. Uh, it was a failure in that the, the uh, uh, economic union didn't have a as a counterpart a political union, which is now causing severe problems. But to a limited extent, that was successful. And you just compare that with the United States. When the U.S. Uh, under Clinton uh, took the initiative in creating NAFTA, which is a, a kind of an economic union, Canada, United States, and Mexico, that's two rich countries and one poor country. It did not take those steps towards Mexico. It's not that it wasn't suggested. The uh, uh, Office of Technology Assessment, uh, Congress's research bureau since disbanded, uh, made exactly that proposal and spelled it out in considerable detail and uh, urged that that would lead to a, a high-wage, high-growth uh, economy for all three countries. The U.S. labor movement took exactly the same position. There's a labor advisory council which according to U.S. law, trade law is supposed to be consulted on such things, but wasn't until the very last minute. But they made very similar proposals, uh, uh, again, using the European Union um, model as suggestive. It's not identical, but as suggestive. Uh, not only was that rejected, it wasn't even discussed, and the press wouldn't literally wouldn't report it. So almost nobody knows about it, unless they read kind of arcane literature. But uh, uh, now Europe is paying the cost. Uh, in, the, in North America, the cost has been quite severe. Uh, for Mexico, it's been very harmful. There's a lot of uh, propaganda, including media propaganda, about Mexico's uh, great economic success since NAFTA. But you just look at the data, it's complete, it's complete fabrication. It's been pointed out over and over. And for the United States and Canada, too, it's meant uh, uh, lost employment, a means to destroy unions. Uh, so, for example, in the United States, one effect of NAFTA was that uh, enterprises, companies here, could uh, destroy organizing efforts uh, by uh, threatening to transfer the plants or enterprise to Mexico if workers continued to try to organize. Uh, in fact, the, under a NAFTA study run by Cornell University labor historian, uh, it was discovered that those, that those efforts increased very sharply, I think 50% after NAFTA. Now, that happens to be illegal, but corporations can quite freely carry out illegal actions when there's a criminal state that's not going to enforce them. And that played a notable role in... Uh, undermining unions, hence undermining the workforce and the standard of living of working people, uh, plus just the uh, ability to shift uh, jobs to Mexico under what's ludicrously called trade. It's not trade. It's operations internal to a command economy, but like, say, General Motors, but uh, that's uh, economic chicanery. Anyway, this, this happened in North America. It didn't happen in Europe. And now, in a certain way, Europe is paying a price for its relative humanity. Now, that doesn't exonerate the actions of the Troika in any respect. Uh, I'm sorry, I have to leave. I have another interview coming up.
Well, Professor Chomsky, thank you very much for joining yeah. us and for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you.